I'm Thine, O Lord, is a Fanny Crosby original that ties in nicely with what we're going to talk about tonight. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, looking at verses 5 through 8 and other places in the New Testament that talk about the same thing. And uh, it's a strange topic to our ears today, but I think it's very relevant, very applicable in the, the uh, intersectional political climate we live in um, when we're seeking justice <laughs> and uh, trying to redefine what that means and um, forgetting as a culture the God who has called us by his grace through the gospel. Not here, not for us. We're going to remember our Savior and not neglect our so great salvation even in this hour. Let's uh, take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship with God and um, prepare our hearts to study together as we uh, seek what God would do with us through his scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for being our creator, making us in your image, in your likeness, to serve you for yourself. We thank you that you've saved us despite our brokenness. You've acted through your Son to save us from the ultimate consequence of the sinful desires of our broken hearts. We thank you that Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever, is our Savior and that we can rest in Him. Thank you that hope does not disappoint, and that tonight we can lay hold of that for which you've laid hold of us as we pay attention to your Son, His expectations for us. Father, it's for your glory and your grace that we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guess what? Notes. title tonight's discussion, Spirit, Spirit-Filled Slavery. It's the third time we've looked at this passage together, and uh, it's the first time this group has been together to look at it, <laughs> that I know of. I don't know, if, I never know who's behind, on the other end of that camera there, but uh, welcome. It's good for you to see us, I guess is how to say that. <laughs> it's good to see you. Um, in Ephesians chapter 6, as you know, I think verses 1 through 9 follow on from Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. Doesn't that make sense? Ephesians 6, 1 through 9 follows from 5, 22 through 33. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the numbers in the book. What I mean is, more importantly, in its grammar and what Paul is saying, why does he talk about the household code, which is this section of 522 through 69? Why is this chunk in this section? It's because that whole discussion of wives and then husbands, children and then parents, slaves and then masters, all in the Roman household, that is the point of application for what the Holy Spirit does in the believer who is filled with the Word 
in terms of submitting one to another. Submit one to another. That's 521. The result of the filling of the Holy Spirit in 518, this wonderful work that is your birthright as a believer in Jesus Christ in this age, this work of the Holy Spirit described as filling here, letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you in Colossians 3.16. Same writer, same effects. This work has these desired effects. And I think it's the same thing he's talking about in Galatians 5 when he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. He doesn't say you will not. He says it will be impossible, absolutely impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh if you tease out the Greek. And then he gives you the fruit of the Spirit after listing the deeds of the flesh, sin, and then the fruit of the Spirit, all telescoping out from love, I think it's the same thing. This is the effect of the filling of the Spirit in 519 through 21. And I can't say that enough because it's such a vital chunk of Scripture. This governs every aspect of the believer's life in terms of household relationships. And by way of review, I'll just remark, I think from my experience and my watching of Scripture and life in general and probably all of your lives, household relationships are the most difficult. Only slightly more difficult is the thing you have to deal with with yourself where you look at you in ways you don't want to see and things you don't want to see about yourself. That's one reason household relationships are tough is wives show their husbands things that they don't want to look at about themselves and vice versa because we're broken and we have to look at that brokenness. We want to put on blinders and only see the part of ourselves that we want to look at. I really like my toes, so I'm going to stare at those. At least my toes are okay. Don't want to look at anything else because it's such a mess. We want to look at what we want to look at and we don't see the whole thing. And part of that's because we just have to survive. We just have to get through life. And we don't want to wallow in our, our failings. Well, don't wallow. Wallow or actually exult in your Savior, in Jesus Christ, and recognize that we bring nothing to the table but need and He meets the need and then advances us beyond just meeting our need to making us fit, capable of serving Him. But it's all the work of God and His grace through his spirit and that's the filling of the spirit what happens when you're filled by the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs always giving thanks for all things in the name of our lord jesus christ to god even the father and being subject one to another in the fear of christ this is stated results these are the beautiful things how you talk to god how you relate to him in gratitude how you sing to him how you talk to each other psalms hymns and spiritual songs how you submit one to another and so that's the launching point, verse 21, into what we've discussed. We've spent a long time in husbands and wives, dealing with wives submitting to their husbands. And we said, in that context, based on parents and children, slaves and masters, there is absolutely no undoing of God's creation order of husband as head and wife as body in the relationship. Head and body is established, headship is established in Genesis 2 when God gave man his wife, and, it cre- and by creating woman and simultaneously created marriage. This isn't undone through the fall and it's not undone in the new life we have in Christ now, but the brokenness of marriage where we're selfish, where we're seeking our own, that should be progressively undone as we're looking to Christ, as we're serving him and how we treat one another. What I'm trying to get at is authority structures don't go away just because we're Christians. 
how we relate to the authority structure we find ourselves in, like marriage, parents and children, slaves and masters, that's everything. How you relate to it how you relate to it. And that's what Paul is teaching. The Holy Spirit enables you as a wife to submit to your husband even though X, Y, Z, whatever. The th- These are the reasons I can't do it. No, you can, but you do it as unto the Lord. This is why a husband can self-sacrificially love his wife even though. Can you believe she, this, that, and the other thing? Yes, I can. But you can in looking at Jesus Christ and submitting to him, put yourself last, concern yourself only for her, and be a man, be a Christian man, loving your wife in the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, loving his church. So this is our context when we get to parent, parent, or children, then parents, and now we're looking at slaves and masters, and that is extremely uh, politically incorrect to talk about slaves and masters. <clears throat> It's, it's undignified to be a slave. It's a horrible thought that another human would own me. Unless we mean the God-man, Jesus Christ. I am thine, O Lord. Yes, I do want him to own me. I want to be just like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle James, or James the Elder. And in James uh, 1, James is a slave of Christ. And Paul, a slave of Christ. I want to be one who belongs to Jesus, who's been purchased by his blood or redeemed, and therefore owned by him. I want to be one of those people just like you, you want to be one of those people who are in Christ, so that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Jesus descends to the clouds, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ rise first. You want to be one of those people that are in Christ. Because at the end of that little section of promises in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, you know what the final whammy is? The final thing to encourage one another who have lost loved ones, but we grieve but not without not without hope. The final encouragement is when this happens, when we are resurrected, so shall we always be with the Lord. Stuck. Sorry. If you want a break from being with Jesus, you don't get one. That's your destiny. That's your future. And so adopting a biblical perspective as a Christian about my identity in Christ will change how I think about money, social status, politics, pretty much every aspect of life. Now, I believe in our day, we are seeking as a civilization to be enslaved. I think our population, I think the millennials think that slavery is a good deal. They won't call it that, but they want that. They want their needs provided for by someone with the, uh, with the, the, the funds, the wherewithal to provide their needs. Not all of you, many people born in that generation in this room. Of course, you understand I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those to whom you must minister in your generation. We need the government to provide for us. The problem with that, in my opinion, from reading 1 Samuel chapter 8 especially, is the one who provides for you is the one who calls the shots for you. You know, you can keep your doctor. <laughs> or not. We'll just provide you one at uh, whatever, our, whatever the, the price point we can afford is. And so I think that this is very relevant to our time, and it's a really important thing to think of, but I turn the whole concept of slavery on its ear. We don't have any people enslaved by law today. It used to be something in, this, in all countries that's been a problem in, with mankind, man owning man. But um, it's interesting that people in the freest country in world history are doing their best to 
enslave themselves to one who will provide for them. They don't understand that there's always a price. If you provide me my living, then you're going to require me to produce. That's just how it's going to be. That's the other side of it. We learned it from the Soviet system. This one, we learned it from the Chinese and uh, those that followed them. And um, somehow we, we've forgotten or we just won't pay attention. Well, I, some of you are good and angry now and me talking about slavery in that sense. So um, let's go to the scriptures and talk about it. Let's say you find it. This is, I told you the other day, has been my greatest fear in life uh, after the flesh is that I would be owned by someone because I was taught very early to really love my freedom, my liberty, and uh, connect it to being God's image, bearing an, be, being an image bearer of God, that uh, the ideal government would be that which doesn't infringe upon my freedom to serve him, to serve God, because I'm already owned. And so when someone else says, no, no, you're working for me. No, I'm working for him. Well, this is the answer to that problem. If I find myself in chains at some point, I better go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, because in the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the freedom that Jesus Christ has freed me, I can serve Christ as a slave. It's awesome. It's awesome to consider. New American Standard says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. My little Bible study methods heart wants to say, look at all the things we can observe about verse 5. As you know, I'm going to say, it's internal. Fear and trembling, um, sincerity of your heart. And we're definitely speaking about the boss. We're speaking about a slave master. We're not speaking about... um, Uh, any sort of spiritual thing. It's masters according to the flesh. So we don't mean Jesus when we're talking about obey them. You serve as to the Lord Jesus. And in your little handout, you've got my translation underneath the Greek. Obey your lords is more explicit than masters because the word is kurios, the word for the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your hearts as unto Christ. So as unto Jesus Christ, that's the key to all these authority structures. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your, literally, soul. From your, from your soul. It doesn't say the heart. It says the suke, from the self, from the inner person. See, it's all internal. So it's not... Just giving obeisance and saying, I have to bow here and I have to turn here and I have to go, yes, sir, and here's your ice and your drink. And here, it's not external, primarily, it's internal. And I think that's the most important principle in the whole discussion. This is the filling of the Spirit bringing forth an obedient spirit in my, in my own experience where I am serving God and how I treat someone in authority over me and something as awful, as unthinkable as slavery. I, I believe that a vast majority of the population to which Paul wrote was enslaved in some sense. I thought there would be a few little passages on slavery if I did the little word studies. Look up servant, slave, um, in the English Bible, figure out what the Greek words are, look all those up in the Greek uh, text, which is the actual, you know, the way it was inspired in Greek. And you find there's, there's a couple hundred references to slaves, servants, and owned people in the New Testament. And um, several significant passages that teach on it. 
We've emphasized 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians 5 and Col- or, sorry, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, just to name a couple, but there, Paul talks about it through his epistles. But it's inside, not outside. I'm not looking at my chains. I'm not looking at my economic situation. Why would I? Well, if you don't believe in God, and therefore you don't have Christ, who is the heir of all things in Hebrews chapter 2, if you don't belong to the one who already owns everything so that you're his son, you're God's son and an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him in, in Romans 8, then you've got to look at your economics. You've got to look at your change. You've got to look at your situation and say, it's not, it's not good. And then you look at other people and say, they've got it better. And that's the world. This is the argumentation of half of the country right now. As you look at the other people, they have more. I have less. How'd they get more? Are they smarter? No, they made C's in college if they even went. How'd they get more? They, they, got, they worked or they were given. They, were, they inherited. God dis, did some sort of distribution. And the one who owns all the property has distributed. Nope, we need redistributive change. And that'll satisfy the aching longings of our heart. But it won't. Because it's just treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And Jesus taught us not to think about that. So internally, when I find myself in an authority structure, what I don't do is rage against the machine and gnash my teeth and say, unfair. God is righteous and just and he's got me and I trust him. But, but, they, but they're unfair to me. But God is righteous and just and faithful and loving and he's my father and I trust him. And that's, that's a constant mindset that I've got to reintroduce to my situation. I know I'm not the only one. We have to keep going back to what we believe. As the writer of Hebrews says, we don't neglect our so great salvation. Oh, that's at church on Sunday. I'm talking about at work when they're unfair. This is where church on Sunday is supposed to have the effect that I'm intaking the word so that the Holy Spirit can fill me with it on Monday when I have to deal with the boss and look at my chains. But we're not doing it externally. We're doing it internally as slaves of Christ. Everybody here who is a believer in Jesus Christ has been bought by him. And I think that's the sense in which you can call yourself a doulos, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you comfortable with that language? Do you love it? Do you adore it? Do you believe it? Is it part of your self-identity that you're owned? I hope it is. I pray for you that this is something you're very comfortable with. I hope you're not trying to be your own person. That's the lake of fire. That's hell. That's Satan's original lie to man. Do your own thing. Disregard God's revelation He's holding back the goodies from you again in Genesis 3.5. I don't want to be my own person. I know enough about me to know that that's not very good. <laughs> but if I'm his, wow, that, that starts to make me feel like I have some value that I couldn't even imagine. In fact, the purchase price for me was the blood of Jesus. Put a price on that, put a value on that in dollars and cents. Oh, but you've got to believe that. That's a spiritual thing. I'm talking about, I, I, just, I, I have to eat ramen noodles and it's not fair. Well, eat and drink as unto the Lord and trust in him because the poor are going to inherit the kingdom in James 4. 
But we don't do whatever we do when we have an authority. We won't do it externally. We do it internally. And does that have effects on how we treat the person on the outside? When the boss says, here's what I want. Go make bricks, no straw. You're enslaved. And you say, I don't know how we're going to do it, sir, but we'll do our best. And you go forward and you do your best as unto the Lord. And maybe you take some lashings for it and it's awful and it's unfair. And he who sits in heaven is watching and judging and the Supreme Court of heaven is in session. And you're trusting yourself to him who judges righteously like Jesus did. When you, when you think of it that way, that's a vastly different perspective than when the boss says something unfair and I don't like it and I get angry and I storm off and I slam the door and get beaten and suffer for being disrespectful, Right? When we take it to the Lord and say, unfair circumstances end up with great reward, I think we're um, in tune with what Paul is teaching us because he takes us in verse 8 to the rewards. With goodwill, that's another internal factor. That's, an, that's, that's a heart factor of how you're thinking about the boss, about the master. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men. <clears throat> this, is the con- this is the concept of how the attitude that's supposed to be true for us as we are serving. With goodwill, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Paul is teaching on the assumption of Matthew 6. Matthew 6. He's assuming what Jesus taught about value, about reward, about, about treasure. But you have to believe in God. You have to believe in God's promises. You have to believe in all that he says about Jesus and therefore all that he says about you to even have any kind of rationale like Paul is making here. That if I serve an unfair master and do what he wants for the Lord's sake and I do it for him, Jesus, you know what, you see what's happening. I'm doing this for you as unto you. You're not saying that in front of the boss, but that's the conversation you're having. Father, this is your life you've given me. It's for your service. Help me to do what I'm required to do. Let me walk by your spirit. Empower me to do this task for you. And you respectfully carry forth and you do an excellent job and you do exactly what you're supposed to do according to what the unfair master has said. You're not ta- I'm not talking about sin and they tell you to sin so now you have to commit personal sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when someone is unfair or harshly treating you and they have the position of authority where they are abusing it. This is where this application becomes so very important. The reason that you can do this with joy is that you know something. You know that whatever thing you do for God in His power, whatever thing you do to Him that's a good thing that He considers of gold, silver, precious stones, this you're going to get back. Now think about this. I have to go empty His ashtray. It's awful. I have to smell those stinky ashes or chamber pot, or whatever. I have to go cut his harvest and then bring his harvest into the barn after threshing it, and he gets rich by selling the, the surplus that they don't need to live for the household, and I don't see any of it. All I get is my three square meals a day in shelter and an occasional trip to the Medicus. I don't get 
anything like what the, the landowner, the slave master gets from harvesting all this grain. I'm out there breaking my back and I got to do all this Roman slavery. Wait a second. All the master gets out of it is the money that he sells the grain for at market. He gets his return on your back-breaking labor. It's true. You get eternal reward that cannot be diminished. Right here. Whatever good thing each one does, that back-breaking labor you did in the field for the Lord's sake, you said, Lord, I am crewing this for you, and I'm trusting you that what you've promised about this recompense is so. And I'm claiming 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. And I believe in the judgment seat of Christ described in 1 Corinthians 3. And I know that you have this and you are watching. And that as I do this as your child in the power of your spirit for you, that you're not letting any of these grains, which are going to be weighed and sold for cash, which is going to be spent or inflated away, I know that you're not going to drop any of this that I've done for you. It's an eternal perspective, but that's what, that's what Paul offers. The answer to the question of slavery in the New Testament is wait. I don't want to wait. I want to be free, and, and we do. Scary, huh? Start stomping up here. I ought to get a jump rope. <laughs> Have to go sideways because of the pulpit, but... I want to be free. Well, we all want to be free. I don't like this uncomfortable situation. Well, nobody likes this uncomfortable situation. You, and look at all the household situations. Children whose parents don't get them or they're not fair or they, they don't understand. P- poor kids whose parents are trying to live their lives through their kids. You know, who, who, who vicariously try to, they, they're failures for whatever reason, are trying to recreate the dream in their kids and putting that pressure on their kids. What a horrible thing for people to do. It's a first world problem, I suspect. What a shame for for people to abuse their children that way. I mean, misuse them so that you're not teaching a child like looking at him and and consecrating him, Proverbs 22, consecrating him, starting him off on the way that is his way so that when he's old, he doesn't turn from it. You you, direct it as it seems it's supposed to go is that what that proverb is telling us so that they're not fighting themselves so that they you know if you have a have a little number cruncher buy him a calculator right he may not be the football guy he may be but if you get him a football be sure to get him a calculator too because he's a little math kid you know what i mean and and so when my illustrations when parents misread their kids and they don't they don't, they disobey this command not to provoke them to anger. And the kid is a believer and has the Holy Spirit and says, I'm going to submit to this parent who doesn't understand. And I don't, I'm confused and I'm a child, but I, I know I've got to obey my parents and the Lord for this is right. That child under an unfair circumstance is glorifying God. And every time he makes the right choice to serve God, despite this uh, unfair situation, disadvantageous choices that the boss is making, the parents are making, that child is accruing rewards by this concept. Whatever, whatever good thing each one does, he'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. See, it, Peter is very explicit about suffering unjustly in 1 Peter 2, and, and we looked at that on Sunday. <clears throat> This is Colossians three twenty two through 25. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, 
Not with external service of those who merely please men. See, it's almost the exact same results all through the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians. Not with external service of those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. See, fear and trembling in Ephesians 6, fearing the Lord in Colossians 3. Isn't that neat? I love it. I love that Paul has gotten two letters where he's basically saying the same thing, and it's, in, it's, it's echoing with a little bit of different nuance. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. You're doing it for him, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, I believe that when he connects the reward with inheritance, um, that is telling us something about both. Every time you read a rewards passage, whether it's cities, you know, uh, you've been faithful in a few things, will make you Lord over many things. There's always this interesting thing about higher responsibility. Rewards sound great, but think about the lottery winners. They don't usually do very well. First of all, they play the lottery. And what that tells me is if they're really banking on and really hoping that this is going to go, they're not good at math. Or they've got bad theology, one of the two. Um, if you're a lottery player, uh, I don't know it. Because if I, if I knew it, I wouldn't say this, so... Um, the emails are going to start flying. I play the lottery. Well, but think about all these lottery stories, the, the, the lottery tragedies. The people that win, they got the jackpot. They got the five, ten, fifty, hundred million dollar jackpot. And you talk to them a few years later, and they say, "I've got kids that have died from drug overdoses. Um, we're bankrupt now. Um, the you know we crashed the Bugatti." Uh, and then were sued for whatever was left. And it just, these horrible, sad stories of people that have been promoted beyond what they had the capacity to manage. That's what it does. When someone, you know, easy come, easy go. And um, I, don't mean, I don't mean to be, um, I don't mean to be, I don't know the word. I don't want to put down lottery players. That's not my point. Don't misunderstand. I'm not telling you never buy a lottery ticket. Kind of, I kind of, I'm kind of telling you that. But um, it's, it, I always, my, my uh, Mrs. Beatles, I think it was her, she said the lottery is a tax on people that don't understand math. That's what she said. Um, anyway, um, what I want to say is that um, when you get a lot of resources and you don't have the skills the perspective, the vision to manage those resources, a couple of things can happen. One is that you could just let it sit because you're wise enough to be scared and not mess with it. That's kind of a loser proposition as we see in the parables of Jesus. Well, here, here's your coin back. Um, but that's not what you, people usually do. They say, hey, let's play. And they find out that it's not fun all the fun you can have isn't fun and they do a little Solomon dance and at the end they say, well, it would have been better not to have had all this money. And the reason, the reason that is true is because life isn't for wealth. Money is a means of exchange and it's a method of actually a resource for doing God's work because you're God's person. You're God's beloved child and in one other way of describing you're his slave. He's bought you with his son's blood. And so when you think about resources and um, rewards so many of the rewards are 
things like we would think of like winning the lottery. You get all that gold, silver, precious stones back. I better know what to do with those resources when it's time for me to put them to work. And I think that's what inheritance is. I think when you receive an inheritance, um, I, think every, I believe every believer receives an inheritance from the Lord. I'm told some things all believers receive are inheritance, like the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1.14. Like the... Um, the resurrection body in First, or, uh, yeah, First Corinthians 15. That's, that's the, your inheritance that you will inherit because you have a resurrection body. It's part of your inheritance. Some things seem to be in question like rewards for obedience. Everything you do, you get back. And there's the wood, hay, stubble in First Corinthians 3 that you don't get that back. It burns up. And you're saved with, you know, with singed eyebrows, though as through fire, it says. And so... Um, I believe that there is a connection between rewards and inheritance. I think some aspects of the believer's inheritance that God wants to give you, kind of as the CEO of the company, he wants to pass the business to you, but you have to grow up and serve to be able to know how to do it. And that's partly why I think some of the rewards don't ever, you don't receive the rewards that he's laid up for you because um, we haven't matured to the point of serving him in that way. Well, that's my theory of inheritance and rewards, and I think Colossians 3.24 is one of the most important verses. Now, he doesn't address masters by name, but he says to the masters in verse 25, for he who does wrong will receive wrong, will receive the consequences of the wrong which he's done, and that without partiality. So, see, when we're treated unfairly, God is watching, and that's always meant to be an encouragement. I want to propose some uh, initial points of application And you've got them on your handout if you want to look at that. Because I think I have some of the answers to some of the questions you've been burdened with these many weeks since I first put this out there. All right, some initial points of application. First, economic status is not everything. Marxism, it's everything. It's way important in National Socialism, Nazism, which is a socialist construct. It's really important. It's not everything, but it's pretty close because there's no God except Mother Earth. But if you're a Christian, economic status isn't everything. Second, economic status is not your identity, and that's huge. Economic status is not your identity. Well, I'm a slave, so hey, if you're, Paul elsewhere will say, if you're, if you're Christ, if you're a slave, then recognize you're free in Christ. And if you're a free man, recognize you're Christ's slave. So the point is, you belong to Jesus. That's your identity. Put a price on that. You can't. It's totally a different conversation. See, this is what's wrong with our culture today is we've bought the lie that it's all about money and some people have more than others and we don't like it. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. And a lot of times it's because somebody did their homework or stayed up later and worked harder. And sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes it isn't because they did worked harder. 
Why are all the C students millionaires? What's going on with that? I'm, I feel offended. I wasn't a C student. I, I did my homework. Why, why do they get? I, that's God's business. It's his property. But see, it's not really something to worry about because economic status isn't even your identity. Third, primary focus for a Christian slave is not social justice, but his service to God for Christ's sake. See, the, the main question you and I need to answer is not how do I get into the status I want to be in. It's since I am in the status that I want to be in because I'm in Christ, what does he want me to do today? How can I serve him? That's the real question. That's the ultimate thing to consider. And if you're a child, it's easy. I mean, a child in a parent's home under their authority, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. That is how you apply, be filled by the Spirit. A child in the power of the Holy Spirit can go obey his parents. She can go do what, his parent, what her parents want her to do for God's sake, for Christ's sake. So social justice is a satanic ruse. It's a huge attack on the spiritual life of our country or any country where it takes root. Because what we mean is equal outcomes. You can never guarantee equal outcomes. But God alone can guarantee righteous outcomes. Fourth, even in slavery, our performance for God under authority is valuable to him for all eternity. Even if you find yourself a slave, I'm... I'm hacking this guy's grain down. I'm storing it in his barn. I'm even carrying it off to market. And then I bring in the bag of gold and I don't get any of it. You get better than the, than the master got because your gold is eternal. That's the idea. Even in slavery, our performance for God under authority is valuable to him for all eternity. And you can't miss this concept of authority. The same writer, Romans 13, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, all authority comes from God. So we obey the governing authorities as unto the Lord because we're obeying God. And, and he talks about government in that sense or any authority structure. For some people, any exercise of authority will be an abuse of authority because in our hearts we're rebels and we don't want God to be in, in charge. And if I'm honest with myself, there are times and unguarded moments when someone in authority says something that I don't want to hear and I grind my teeth a little bit, at it, a bit about it. I know this about myself from a very young age. When someone with the right to tell me what, what, how it is says something that I don't want it to be that way, well, I don't like that. Until I learn, no, um, the way I'm going to serve God in this instance is figure out who's in charge and serve that person for God's sake. I'm going to serve the Lord and how I relate to that authority. Literacy. Paul's writing to these people, slaves, obey your masters. Literacy frees slaves from the chains of meaningless labor to enable them to put their work in divine perspective. If I was a Roman citizen in the first century, after reading this, but before Philemon, I would definitely have a literacy program going. I would definitely have Sunday school. I would be training those in my household to serve God on these terms. And after reading Philemon, I suspect I would be making uh, tracks. I would be trying to figure out how to turn my household into a real small business and to free those who were in the family business but in chains. 
Nevertheless, whether I was a fair master or not, a slave in Christ who has the Holy Spirit in him or her is able through the word of God to make their, his life count, to make it count for eternity. In a way that the richest person, the freest man you'll ever meet who builds buildings and cities and metropolises, they don't have that freedom because they don't have that relationship with God. A second application, a modern application, I want you to notice the household code context. It's a different culture than we have today. This is the household. Abraham had 400 people in his household. Those are not his family. We know the story of Abraham. He didn't even have one son yet. And it's not all cousins. His army are people that are his servants. And they do what he says. And he feeds them and and shelters them. And so household. Today we think small business. I think this was what's wrong with management and labor and uh, the Industrial Revolution. Why the Pinkertons had to be thugs for Henry Ford fighting the labor unions in the 20s and stuff. You know, what's going on back when we first started industrializing was we didn't consider those factory workers as some sense household. We didn't think of the people working for us as part of us. We thought there's a market, and it's true, and you're worth what I, your, your labor is worth what I can afford to pay, and I can't afford to pay more than this for this or whatever, but we didn't think of them that way. And that's a problem. I think that's an application of this. This is household code. I would say it'd be better to be a Roman slave in a Christian household, much better than any of those factory workers in the American Industrial Revolution, but they were free. Why? Because they were cared for. Because they were considered part of the part of the the family. Again, I wouldn't want to be either. <laughs> give me give me a mule team with some acreage, and I'll work it till my hands are raw before I go to a factory uh, in the city in the in the industrial revolution. I, I love I love industrialization, but I wouldn't want to work it. Employees at work, this is how you apply this household code stuff today. Employees at work have authority over them. They're the boss. It's not the same as a slave master, but it's still a boss, still someone in authority. It's a different relationship for management and labor from masters and slaves, but um, how are they the same? What's the sameness? How are they different? What's the sense of difference? Well, the, the boss doesn't owe you. Remember that old song, Tennessee Ernie Ford, 16 tons? The, the coal miners? What do you get another day older and deeper in debt? Say, Peter, don't call me because you know I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Meaning, I'm in debt to the company store. I keep borrowing from, against my future pay. And so I'm basically a debt slave to the company, to the coal, coal mine. That's what that song's about. Anyway, it's a great song. <laughs> Especially with the deep bass voice of Tennessee Ernie Ford. Management and labor, um, I think you could see a connection between bosses and employees and what Paul's talking about with slaves and masters. Again, it's not the same, but there is definitely an authority structure there. This is what's wrong with labor unions. It is. Because there's an authority structure that we're saying, nope, we're not going to go with that authority structure. We're going to do it our way. 
we're going to collectively bargain for how we're going to structure this, this business. Well, um, whose business is it? How'd it get there? And um, who's, who's really responsible to make the decisions for it? And um, you can always quit a job. You can always quit a job, and so it's not the same as slavery, but you can see the value. And everyone I know struggles when they go to work. At whatever level you're working, everyone struggles with the boss. The boss may not know it's a struggle because you don't let them see it, but it's hard because they're broken, they're selfish, they're limited, they're dumb, whatever the, whatever the issue is, which makes it hard for you to work for them. They're not fair. They're, they're, uh, they, they're partial. You've got office politics. There's all these things. This passage is very helpful, I think, to think these things through. Based on the similarities, the advice for employee attitude is very helpful. So when I go to work, I'm going to say, this is for God, I'm doing this, not for the boss. Maybe you're like, no, 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 <laughs> I don't go to work for the boss. I go to work for the check that boss cuts me um, on Friday. And I'm, I'm religious about that clock because I'm going to get my check. I'm doing it for the money. Well, um, Jesus talks about serving wealth. And you shouldn't serve that either. But see, what you're doing, you go and you do what you do for the Lord. And so it's Sunday morning, part two on Monday. Now I'm worshiping, going to work. Father, this is your, your field for me to work in. Help me serve you. And I don't mean you got to do churchy things. I don't mean you drink at the coffee break out of little cups, little glass coffee cups, because it's churchy. I don't mean that, obviously. I don't mean that um, when everyone says someone speaks to you, speak to them in Psalms. How are you doing today? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Tuesday morning. Well, good morning. How are you feeling today? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I mean, that'd be an interesting person to talk to, maybe. Kind of a weirdo. What we're saying, though, is as you go to work, this is in your heart, you're talking to the Lord in your consistent prayer praying for the people around you, thankful for the opportunity, and you're saying, God, uh, I'm, I want my whole life to be yours, and so this is for you. What I'm going to do in res- response to this unfair situation at work is for you. I'm going to do it uh, inside out. It's, it's internal. I'm going to do it looking for the eternal recompense, not just that paycheck that feeds the family that I thank God for, and when we buy food with it and sit down to dinner, we thank God for the food. But I'm going to say there's got to be more to life than the weekly paycheck. There's got to be more to life than the attaboy that the boss finally said, hey, you know, um, I saw that report you turned in and, uh, you know, it didn't completely, uh, it wasn't completely a, a, a ruin. There was, there was some redeeming value to it. You're like, oh, finally a compliment. <laughs> you know, you're not living for that. You're not living for the temporal results you're living for the eternal results of your temporal choices and that is everywhere in scripture god really cares about the decisions that we make in the moment he really thinks they matter i want to close tonight with genesis 39 an illustration of someone who entrusted himself in slavery to god who judges righteously and found himself in god's service in a very special way the end of Genesis 37, we find Joseph is sold into slavery. 
In the beginning of chapter 39, we skip chapter 38 because it's about Judah and Tamar and uh, why Judah is not favored. But in 39, you find Joseph in exactly the description, the situation we're talking about in slavery in Ephesians chapter 6. Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, the Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And then this is directly parallel to what we're reading about being filled by the Spirit. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. We know from prior revelation that this family is marked out to rule over all the nations. We know that they are going to give us the Messiah. We know already, again, from prior revelation that God has given Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that this is the most blessed family in all of history. And yet here he is enslaved to a functionary in Mitzrayim in Egypt. These Hamites, these Gentiles are ruling him and owning him. But see, what's more important than that, instead of looking at his covenantal privilege with the Abrahamic covenant, instead of looking at his temporal circumstances, I'm enslaved, he can say, the Lord Yahweh is with him. Verse two is the most important verse in the story of Joseph. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now, not every boss, not every master is gonna be perceptive. Potiphar is. He's very perceptive. He knows the score when his wife accuses Joseph, and that's why he doesn't have him killed. Potiphar is a good boss. That happens at times. <laughs> if you haven't experienced that before, trust me, it happens. It may not be the norm, but when it happens, you're almost thankful for all the times it wasn't there because when you have somebody you're working for that is perceptive and wise and, and equitable and fair, you say, oh, what a contrast. It's almost like the sun breaking through in the spring here in New England. We've been through the, the, the gray for so long that when we see the sunshine, we almost thank God for the gray so we can appreciate the sun. This is my encouragement to you who are under unfair treatment at work. But God, saw, but God favored Joseph, and then Potiphar saw that God favored Joseph. Maybe your boss sees it, maybe he doesn't. The real boss, the Lord, sees it, and he is... Uh, going to recompense you for what you do that pleases him. But in the temporal circumstance, Joseph found favor in his sight and became uh, Potiphar's personal servant. And made him, he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. And this is something you see repeatedly in Joseph's life. He rises to the top. He's at the bottom. He rises to the top in the Lord's uh, grace through Potiphar's house. He goes to prison. He becomes the, the chief prisoner. He rises to the top of the prison, then he finds himself, uh, he skips Potiphar's house uh, the next round and becomes uh, over the entire country. And it's God's uh, method of delivering his people from the famine and saving their lives. And that's what Joseph is used for. I mean, let's skip to the end. The reason Joseph is favored is because God has something for him to do with his life. Now, we want to be a Joseph. We want to get promoted. We want to see ourselves uh, prosper because God is with us and the other person sees us that, that God blesses us. And while wow, this guy's insightful, he can do some stuff. We want to be promoted because someone sees that we bring value to the situation. But let's look at the big picture. Why is God with Joseph? 
Because God has something for Joseph to accomplish. He's got a mission for him. And it turns out Joseph doesn't even know what it is. He's just serving the Lord. Turns out God, we find out at the end, wants to save Jacob and his sons from this famine. And so he puts Joseph in a position to bring them into Goshen, into Egypt. God is going to use this hated brother that he's been with all this time to save the rest of his brothers that hate him. It's an amazing, amazing turn of events. But it's just one example. It's the prime example in the Bible, I think, of slavery. What do you do when you're enslaved? Serve the Lord. What do you do when you're free? Serve the Lord. Whatever your circumstance is, Paul says this is the secret. When you're, when you're abundant, you're abundant for the Lord. When you're abased, when you're doing without, you're doing without for the Lord, and you're thanking Him for the opportunity. And whatever circumstance you find yourself, you do it all in Christ Jesus through Him who strengthens you. And so this is a Christian alternative to popular social justice warrior stuff. This is, the, this is why we have to say no to this constant effort to rearrange the furniture for Satan's ends of destroying life, I think. And um, that's one huge application here. See, man means slavery for evil, but God meant Joseph's enslavement for good. And whatever situation you find yourself in, if you're under unfair treatment in any authority structure, this is the moment when you, you will be. I, I pray you'll get to trust the Lord through this. That's going to be your moment to say, Father, this is for you. I'm going to serve you in this situation. Be the Christian. Be the slave of Christ in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And submit to duly constituted authority for God's sake. Our Father, we thank you for the filling of the Holy Spirit, the special enablement you've given us to serve you, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to walk worthy of our calling, to submit one to another fear of Christ to be pleasing to you in all that we do. And Father, thank you for the promise we see throughout Scripture that there is an eternal recompense when what we do pleases you. Help us remember that our choices matter, not because humans see them primarily, but because you see them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.